those working wife, happy life listeners here in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, for those of us in the Northeast of the United States, we have been blessed with several days over the past couple weeks that have been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Feeling the sun on your skin and the energy in the air, even allergies are a welcome blessing uh, or curse, I guess. But honestly, as much as I hate winter in general, the feeling that you get, the rejuvenation and rebirth of spring kind of makes it worth it. And I've been thinking, and you'll probably hear it come up in some of the upcoming episodes, um, a lot about being really intentional with my time and barriers and boundaries um, as we kind of reemerge into the world post-pandemic. So whether that's in the working world or socially, just kind of making sure that you're clear on what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do. And most importantly, how you have those conversations, whether they're professional conversations or personal conversations, to be really intentional. And I certainly uh, have not perfected this, um, but I have started having some of those conversations. And it's a meaningful way to kind of put a line in the sand, so to speak, of where you're at and what you're hoping to achieve. And from a relationship perspective, what you're hoping can build or rebuild or even deconstruct. I've done a lot of yoga in my life, and they always say that the poses that you dread the most are the ones that your body needs the most. Um, And I think from a mental and emotional state, uh, the conversations you dread the most are probably the ones you most need to have. And that leads me to today's guest. Uh, Jennifer Risher is the author of the new memoir, We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth. Jen grew up with middle-class values, saving her pennies, wary of the rich, and then she joined their ranks. She is an extra lucky beneficiary of the dot-com boom, and We Need to Talk tells her story and explores the impact of wealth on identity, relationships, and sense of place in this world. This book uncovers so much of what we talk about on this podcast, emotional relationships with money, how our perceptions and engagement with money are influenced by our upbringing and those around us, how money does and doesn't change you, how we do and don't interact on the topic, and on and on. And the book almost feels voyeuristic because you realize how much people withhold when it comes to this topic, how uncomfortable we are about being open and honest about it. So I honestly devoured this book in a single day, and I cannot wait to share with you this enlightening and powerful conversation about money. Enjoy my conversation with Jen Risher. Jen Richard, thank you so much for joining us on Working Wife Happy Life Podcast. I'm so happy to get an opportunity to speak with you. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too. So you are the author of this book, We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth. And I was just sharing with you a moment ago that I am not a fast reader and I devoured this book. Um, It was just written from such a personal and relatable point of view as it is a memoir. Um, But really, you took us through such, you take the reader through such an arc of the emotions and the comfort level and the introspection and the, you know, societal and cultural and familial complexities of money. And I just feel like it was in a way, it felt like a little voyeuristic because we don't talk about these things, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So I first, I just want to thank you because I found the topic so compelling. I found the writing so um, just engrossing in terms of really being feeling like we were on that journey with you. Um, and I would just love to share, if you could just share with our listeners just a little bit of background on, on the book and the memoir um, and why you wrote this book. And then there's lots of juicy topics I can't wait to dig into. Great. Uh, well, I appreciate that opening. I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. I, it's nice to hear. Um, I spent a lot of time writing it. It was 14 years in the works. So oh I can talk about that later. But um, 
Yeah, let me just share my background. So, you know, I was 25 and I got really lucky. I joined Microsoft and I met my husband, David, and I got stock that was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, then six years later, when David and I were married and we were expecting our first child, he took a job at a small unknown startup that was selling books on the internet called amazon.com. I haven't heard of them. <laughs> you know, well, we barely had heard of them at the, at time, the time. And all course. of a sudden, you know, we were in our early thirties, uh, the company went public and we had more money than we could wrap our heads around. Um, and of course, you know, money makes life easier. I'm very fortunate, but wealth surprised me. Mm -hmm. Having a lot of money doesn't look or feel like what Hollywood sells us. Mm. Wealth was isolating. It had an impact on me as a parent, mm -hmm. as a sister, mm -hmm. as a friend. And as a daughter, it was painful to feel my parents disapproved of what I had. Mm. Eight out of 10 people with wealth grew up middle class or poor, mm. but we're not really? talking to each other about the emotional challenges. Yeah. Um, you know, and it may be hard to think of wealth as a challenge that needs to be overcome, especially now when there's so much need. Um, you know, COVID has shown a spotlight on racial and economic inequality. Mm -hmm. um, I should pay more taxes. You know, mm -hmm. minimum wage needs to be higher. We need a stronger social safety net. You know, policy change is needed. Yeah. But I think we need change at a personal level, too. Right. So it really doesn't matter how much is in your bank account. I want to help us move money out of the taboo category, out of the shame category, mm -hmm. and get us talking. That's because such you know, an operative word that shame about money because it's whether it's a lot or too little or anywhere in between because it's such a subjective lever there of what crosses the threshold for you personally. Um, there is inherent shame in our society, regardless of your stature. Absolutely. Yeah. You're ashamed of having not enough. You're ashamed of having too much. And yeah. And, you know, Brene Brown says shame and empathy are on two ends of a continuum. Mm -hmm. And if you're in shame, you're inward looking, you can't have compassion. You can't have that empathy that you need. Mm -hmm. So we need to move out of shame. And I think part of the way we do that is to start having conversations. And it's, you know, it's not comfortable at first, and we're not used to it. We're used to, you know, with any other problem I have, if I want to figure out, should our 16 year old have a curfew, I do my research by talking to my friends. Yeah, I ask everyone I know, you know, I get their ideas, I get advice, I get perspectives. And but the same doesn't, and just the fact that I'm talking is helpful because it lets me know that my problem is normal mm -hmm. and that it's shared and that it's valid and that, you know, other people have the same issue and the same doesn't happen with money. No, it doesn't. And I certainly couldn't talk to friends about having a lot of it. Yes. And so yeah. I thought, well, I can't turn to friends, but maybe I can turn to books, mm -hmm. but there were no books. So, you know, I like wrote my kind of book, like turn to books in terms of how to emotionally handle that shift in your life or about investments or what kind of. No, resources. it was very emotional. I mean, I think we have this fairy tale in our head about what wealth is all about. Yeah. And so when it's, it's the reality is so strange. And so I was looking for books like, well, where are the stories? What, what have other people done? What, you know, why is this so odd? What is. I feel so much distance. I feel like I need to hide what I have. Where are the books about people who come into a lot of money? Yeah. And, the, and at the time, I mean, this was in the 1990s, there was The Millionaire Next Door. And that was sort of a revelation that, oh, people have a lot of money and they're just living right next door. They're kind of more normal and diverse than we would expect. But those, mm -hmm. that book was more a sociological study. I didn't want to research study on quote the rich. I wanted to read about other people like me. Yes. So I, I, and there were no books, right? So I wrote my book really to share my story and it's for people like me. And there are millions of people like me who have more money than they had growing up. 
mm-hmm. or they have more money than many other people in their extended family or have more money than many of their friends. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling my story to help other people understand their own. Yes. And yeah. And I, it's, it's, I think that really came through is that it's not about, like I said, that number is so subjective to everyone about what they consider to be, you know, more than they need or more than enough or, or not enough. Um, obviously there's a minimum amount that everyone needs to survive and, and we have too many people living below that. But I, I think you really thread that where it's it's not about specific numbers. It's about the emotion that, you know, everyone has a different relationship with money. I often think about, you know, my, my parents are separated, but they have two completely different uh, spending and saving habits and concepts of, of what they're willing to spend their money on. So here's two people whose emotional relationship with money was shaped by two other people and their relationship with their parents. And then I am now with my husband who has two views of money from his two parents who got it from four other people, you know, and all of a sudden, of course, this is going to be one of the most intimate and intricate parts of any relationship. Um, And I think you really unpack all the things that go into, you know, both your history with money and finances, um, your current situation. Uh, and, and you just shared something too, where, you know, you didn't have friends that you could talk to about this, but in the book you share that you actually had some very close friends that you guys were on a similar trajectory and similar companies, um, and similar, you know, kind of success arcs with their capabilities and you still weren't talking about it. I think that's really meaningful. It gets very complex. And yeah, like you identified, I think we all have a money story and that story starts in our childhood. We learn attitudes and habits around money from each of our parents Mm -hmm. and unless we kind of understand that and realize it it kind of owns us rather than us kind of being on top of it and understanding why we're reacting to certain things or you know why we're doing certain things and in the end you know the more i talk about money the more i realize it's not money that we don't talk about it's those emotions behind the money that we avoid and yes. and like you said, this is universal. It, it doesn't matter how much is, is, is in your bank account. You know, if you have parents, if you have siblings, if you have friends, if you have a partner, I mean, emotion, we have a lot of fears. We are afraid that we're going to, you know, hurt someone's feelings. We're afraid we're not going to measure up. Mm-hmm. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid we're not going to sound knowledgeable. So we don't talk. And, mm-hmm. and we are, we all do have some degree of money shame and kind of acknowledging that and realizing that and talking through it, I think is so important. Yeah. And, you know, there's these so many age old concepts of like keeping up with the Joneses and, you know, you have my husband and I always remember back when I started in tech, uh, it was early 2000s. And, you know, that was before the housing crisis. And we knew people that were in very similar financial positions that we were that were buying houses that were grossly over the the money that they had. And it just we kept just saying this doesn't add up. This doesn't add up. But it wasn't something that you were, you know, willing to ask somebody like, how the hell are you making this work? You know, you just couldn't have that conversation. And, you know, on this podcast, we, we have a you know, definitely a variety of different types of listeners, but we do have a lot of breadwinning women. And talking about money is one of the biggest things that comes up in our community because certainly women more than men, we don't talk about our salaries. We don't talk about our, you know, equity grants. Um, we don't talk about, uh, you know, our our, fine, our personal finances, what, what we're invested in. Um, and I'm not saying that's a blanket statement, but I'm just saying more generally than, than men. Um, and I think that's a topic that you really hit on with your book, you know, as a new mom, as, you know, being relatively new into this echelon of of success and earning, um, it sounded like you felt very isolated on a number of different levels. Um, And I would love to, you know, I think, to be frank, there might be people listening now that feel like, you know, oh, how can, if you don't have enough money, it's very easy to look at people that have a lot and think, what problems could you have? Right. And, and, and we've all been guilty of those moments. Um, how does that feel when you hear that? Or what is your kind of common response to that? And how can you kind of link that back to how you started your journey? 
in this new world for you. Yeah, no, and it, it comes down again to talking because if everything's in silence, it's easy to look at someone and say, what problems do you have? And to sort of dehumanize people, which you know doesn't serve anyone. Um, I have all sorts of or things I wanna say. First is this sort of idea of like, um, you know, money does bring happiness up to a point. Like if you are struggling to get by, every dollar you're making, every dollar is means something. But mm -hmm. the research from University of, or from Princeton is that, you know, at $75,000, once you kind of reach that that plateau, it, it does plateau. You, you aren't doubly happy if you make twice as much. You aren't 10 mm -hmm. times happier. There's this level that it, it things plateau and yeah, money can, can buy you a big house and a fancy car, but it really comes down to who's living in that house with you. It comes down to our connections with each other. I mean, and that's research, that's what research shows us. The quality of our relationships with other people is what matters most. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, 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 what problems can you have? I mean, you, money can be very disconnecting. It can create distance in relationships. I mean, for me right away, all of a sudden we had all this money <clears throat> and I was a new mom and, you know, as a new mom, this curtain had opened and I couldn't believe how incredible it was to be a mom. I was so in love with this new creature and I joined a mom's group and we all kind of shared this joy and amazement and so many questions, you know, how are we going to get our babies to sleep through the night? You know, should we use a pacifier? You know, are you breastfeeding? How's that going? Like we had so much in common. It was such this bond and so amazing. And at that same time, this other curtain had opened mm -hmm. and I had all this money and I felt like I, that was a very silent space. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear that the rich worry about people liking them for their money, mm -hmm. but I wasn't worried about being liked for what we had. I, I was worried about being hated for it. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want anyone to know. And so I didn't talk about it at all. And I think, you know, looking back, I wish I had. And I think if we can kind of push through those fears that we have, in the, on the other side, there's this huge sense of relief. There's a chance to connect and a chance to learn from each other. Yes. And I think I, I, and I really think, and I, you know, I hope I didn't offend you with that last statement. I just think there are people that I've had, Absolutely. That, I've had it said to me too. Well, it must yeah. be nice, you know, well, that's, you know, that's and I don't think, you, you know, and it's in many ways, I, I understand it and I can joke about it and I can, you know, get where it's coming from in some ways, but there's moments where it really, um, like you're saying it dehumanizes or it feels like it's, it's taking away from, uh, your successes or your achievements or saying that it doesn't bring its own complexities. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of a distancing statement. Oh, must be nice. You're different than me. We're not the same instead of looking at kind of all that we have in common. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, I mean, we are living in a very difficult, I mean, there's so much inequality. It's really a problem, but I think, I mean, it sounds far reaching, but I think conversations can really help us fight income inequality because our silence has a lot of power. Yes. You know, we're silent. It just keeps the status quo in place. Yep. And our silence keeps us from examining our relationship with money. It allows us to just kind of hang out in our bubble unaware. Mm -hmm. And if there's this whole group of people who aren't talking to each other and who feel that stigma or that feel estranged, we're not at our, like I said, we're not at our most empathetic. If we're feeling shame, we're not likely to be feeling empathy or generosity and we're not holding ourselves accountable we're not you know inspired to make change so i think the shaming is just hurting everybody i think mm -hmm. it it really i mean i'm really hoping that that my book becomes a catalyst for conversation and yeah. you know that's my goal right now is to start these conversations and i think there's so many parts of it there's actually a quote that i wrote down when you said, if we talked more openly, maybe we can take the power away from money. Um, and there's so many anecdotes that you share throughout the book, whether it's conversations with friends, whether it's conversations with your family, um, that are really meaningful and they're really hard to navigate in the moment. And sometimes mm -hmm. it takes a long time to, to reapproach something, uh, like that, but it's, you know, can you share with us kind of what was some of the more 
meaningful moments you had once you did start talking or any tips? Mm -hmm. Um, because it could also be that, you know, there, there, you could also be that you're in a friendship or, you know, somebody listening has a sibling with a lot more money and feels that they can't relate to them. What are some ways that we can open those doors? Yes, absolutely. Let me share a few stories and then some ideas on kind of how concretely we can start having these conversations with each other. Um, and I, the first one I think of is a friend um, who's middle class. She and her husband drove the same car for years. And she said when it finally broke down, she was so excited because she could buy an Audi Q5. And she was so excited. She'd wanted that car. She yeah. loved the car. But then when she was planning a trip to visit her sister and she imagined driving up in the car, she started to worry about being judged. Mm. In her mind, she heard her sister saying, ooh, aren't we fancy? Mm -hmm. And then in her mind, she began to justify the car. She was saying, well, it was used. It wasn't that expensive. So even though she, even before she saw her sister, she was making assumptions and telling herself stories. Mm. You know, what if she'd actually talked to her sister? Mm -hmm. I think when we don't talk about something, it tends to loom large and take yeah. on a life of its own. And we give money a lot of power by not talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and here's an example with my brother. Uh, so he is two years younger. And when he graduated from college, he went into the Peace Corps, and then he got a master's in Spanish and became a high school Spanish teacher. And this is many years ago, he wanted to buy a house. And my husband and I, David, gave, we, we wanted to give him $20,000 for the down payment, but he refused our gift. Mm. He said, I, you know, I want to live within my own means. And at the time, his refusal hurt my feelings. I was already uncomfortable with our wealth and I felt like he was looking down on us and down on the money and it really hurt my feelings, but I didn't say anything. Mm. Then a couple years later, a few years later, when he was getting married, Dave and I, again, we sent a, a check as a wedding gift and this time he accepted and he thanked us. And then when his first child was born, uh, we again sent money and he and his wife thanked us and we started to send money every year. And then over the course of many years, he stopped acknowledging the gifts. Mm. So we'd write a check and in December, and then I'd hear silence. It was sort of like this money was disappearing into a void. And I began to feel resentful. I felt like he was, I was being taken for granted, but I didn't say anything. Instead, I told myself stories. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, he's embarrassed or he thinks we have so much money that just doesn't mean anything to us. So it's nothing. Um, and then just recently, and I'm not proud to admit it, I just didn't send a check. And um, in January, when my brother and I were communicating over email, at the end of one of his notes, he said, wondering if a certain year-end check is just late in the mail, is it? Mm. And I read that I was angry and I was shocked. And of course I'm writing this book and I'm like, oh my gosh, we need to talk. Yeah. But you know what? It's uncomfortable. Yeah. This is an area we don't have a muscle built up here. We are fumbling around, you know, we, and I think that's it. We need to give ourselves permission to fumble around and acknowledge that it's uncomfortable. But I, and I really had to sit down and think about what I wanted to say, what I hope to achieve. Mm -hmm. And then I, I said, you know, let's, let's get on the phone. We need to talk. And um, I told him, you know, you haven't thanked us for our gifts and it's really hurt my feelings. Mm -hmm. And he apologized right away. He said he hadn't realized. And in fact, he thought that it was easier and more comfortable for me if he didn't make a big deal out of the money, which of course right. made sense given right. how we'd grown up. So, it, it, and then, you know, then as two people who love and trust each other, we could have this conversation once we were connected it yeah. put money in its place. Yes. Not right. as something bigger than us, but as a tool that then we could discuss. Like he said, I don't need this money, but I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And I'd never asked, but I, you know, I said, what are you doing with it? I, I want to know, I want to be part of your life. Right. Right. Like you want to, and, and it's, and that's, it's such an interesting story because you're really picking up on the stories we all tell ourselves and we're just living in these alternate reality. And you could apply this to anything 
these mm-hmm. alternate realities. And if we are constantly surrounded by folks that are in, you know, the same bucket as we are in terms of their financial stability or in the same industry or in the same region of the country or the globe, you know, all of these things that you just start to develop more of a, um, you know, your, your norms are adjusted and then your assumptions become based on what you're surrounded by. And really the only way to break that down is to build that trust and have those conversations. That's so, it's so I think uh, more, yeah. It, and I think more, we think, oh, well, they're thinking this or I, I'm, you, we think we're kind of more unique than we are. I think we have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I've found again and again, like a lot of the things I'm feeling, oh, that other person's feeling as well. And in fact, at the end, towards the end of this, my writing process, I was like, I want to include different voices and different perspectives in the book. So I'm going to interview some women. And even then I was scared to talk to, talk to people. I was like, I, I, how can I ask people to talk to me about wealth? But when I wrote an email to a couple of acquaintances, the response was amazing. People mm-hmm. wrote back to me right away saying, you know, I think about these things all the time, yeah. but I never talk about them. And then when we got together and we talked about our parents and our kids, we realized we had so much in common and we weren't alone. Mm-hmm. And you needed to help each other, right? Like there was a great, great segment of the book talking about um, your children and how much you wanted to instill, uh, you know, the right work ethic and the understanding of how to manage your money and the understanding of how to treat others around you. And those are meaningful lessons and, and ways that I did have to laugh at some of the stories where you you wanted a certain level of, of ease, whether it was traveling or or whatever, but you worry about spoiling the kids because we're always very upfront with our kids. Anytime we do something, we're like, we're comfortable. You have nothing. You are broke, broke, broke as they come. But your parents <laughs> are able to afford this, you know? And and it's a joke in our household, but I, I, I think it's really important that... Um, you know, particularly in areas where it is uncomfortable that you're approaching that topic to make it less or to make it more comfortable for them and the generations that come after. Yes, absolutely. It, yeah, I think it's it, we need to just build that muscle, get comfortable and talk. I mean, we talk about so many other things. We can mm-hmm. talk about money. And and I think, you know, as you kind of had, we had talked about this earlier about how important it is for women to talk about money, not only so that we're, you know, we know how much we're paying in rent or we talk about how much we're paying in rent so that we know we're not um, paying too much or, or how much we're getting paid or how much we want to charge by the hour, whatever it is. We need to share that sort of information the way we share parenting information or the way we share you know, health issues that we're having or the way we share you know, where to find the best pizza. I mean, we share yeah. so much. We should treat money in the same way. And I think you know, it's sort of like we don't have the confidence, so we don't talk about it. But until we start talking about it, we're not going to build that confidence. It's sort of like we've got to get in there at some point yes. and just be uncomfortable with it. And I think, you know, when I think about it, we need to share how we're investing or, or how we're getting out of debt or any of these things. And I think it's quite easy to say, well, I, I'm so unknowledgeable about that. I don't want to talk about it. But I think we have to accept the fact that we, there's a learning curve. Mm-hmm. I mean, and 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 you, it's intimidating to think of all the kind of terms or concepts or jargon around finances and investing that there that we don't know. But I think we have to dive in there and say, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Tell me about that, and and give ourselves permission to not know. And it, you know, I found that happened with me with philanthropy because it was new to me. I had no idea what I was doing. And when our daughters were in an independent school, that's sort of where I got this lesson. And it was like a foreign language. All of a sudden, development, fundraising, capital campaigns, endowments, you know, stewardship, governance, asks, all these words. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't mm-hmm. know how to go about it. But, you know, you just jump in and, and try. And actually, I'm doing the same thing at this very moment, trying to figure out what are impact investments? Mm-hmm. How am I going to make a difference um, with racial inequality, with impact investments? How am I going to do loan? I mean, you just it it's hard i i I think we need to acknowledge that um but we need to start having those conversations and i think not only do we need to start having those conversations i think women 
can be leaders in, make, in making conversations happen. And I think that's where we need to, because it's very stereotypical, but men generally, you know, have their identity and their ego wrapped up in their salaries where we, not as much. And we are the communicators. We aren't, we don't shy away from emotions in the same way. We can start these conversations within our families, within our communities. And I look to, you know, these philanthropists, you know, who, you know, we just, we both read this article in the New York Times with Melinda Gates and um, Mackenzie Scott and uh, Priscilla Chant, like they are leaders in this. And it reminded me of, this is the true of money conversations too. Like women were always behind the scenes, but research shows women are the ones that are giving, we're giving in community. Now these women are stepping out into the light and leading in a, in an area where frankly, they probably always have been leading from the back, right? But, right. but now they're now- out there. It's right now it's open and it's transparent. And, you know, it's funny. I remember reading that article recently, I guess it was the end of last year where it was highlighting Mackenzie Scott's contributions over the the calendar year. And again, I didn't appreciate how, I guess, unique this was. And maybe it's not, I just don't know. But the fact that one, she used a data-driven approach to figure out which institutions would have the most impact for her money. She moved quickly to make those contributions happen. The contributions were with no strings attached. My understanding from the article, which is very limited, is that's a very unique way of giving. But it also, to me, is a very uh, feminine way of giving, where it's like, I am going to trust somebody else's judgment in a way that they are experts in a field that I'm not. I'm going to make sure that this is a wise choice, right? So we don't necessarily do things as emotionally or haphazardly or, you know, buddy-buddy system. Um, And to me, it's just really remarkable that that was as remarkable as it is. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) You know, I I absolutely know what you mean. You know, the the philanthropy space has a lot of issues and it's very old school and conservative things are changing and Mackenzie's speed at which she gave that much money away is highly unusual and mm-hmm. so needed and so important. I mean, I think people get all caught up in analysis paralysis. I mean, she did the analysis, but she also like trusted the the places that she was giving and she focused on underserved communities and schools and yeah, amazing. It, it really, it, it, it was incredible, but you're right. It, this is, we need to keep moving forward in this space. Um, Can I segue? Oh, sorry, go ahead. It makes me want to talk about kind of what my husband and I are doing with our philanthropy. I felt the same way because it, it it seemed sort of, you know, sort of creative, but it got so much press and so much attention that I was like, wow, is, is that really, is what we're doing so incredible? I mean, so what we did is, um, this is when COVID hit, um, we were, our hearts were really just going out to nonprofits. There was just so much need. We wanted to just get the money flowing. And we realized that there was a lot of money trapped in donor advised funds. Mm. And a donor advised fund is a, a fund that you can put charitable dollars, you get your tax break upfront, and then you can give over time. It's sort of a organizing mechanism. But the problem with donor advised funds is that people get their tax break, they put the money in, and then they don't move it out. And there's so much money sitting in donor advised funds across the country. It's a a huge bottle, $120 billion and more um, sitting there. And so our goal was really to start moving that money out. So we, we put up a challenge and we said, anyone who commits to halving their DAF um, in, in oh, by yeah. September 30th, uh, mm-hmm. we will, we will match wherever they give. And I think the unique thing was we didn't kind of, we weren't prescriptive in terms of where we w- wanted to people to give. We, we just wanted to inspire giving in general. So people could give wherever they wanted, as long as it didn't promote hate speech or violence or gun ownership, they could give anywhere they wanted. They just had to move that money and we made, you know, matching grants. And actually we, we put up a million dollars and that million dollars ended up moving $8.6 million to nonprofits in five months, That's amazing. which technically is amazing. But you know, the other piece that I thought was so encouraging and empowering is that it created this sense of community mm-hmm. among donors. Donors, you know, were saying this is the nudge I needed. 
they were sitting around the dinner table talking with their adult kids because everyone was home, talking about their values and where they want to give. And then the nonprofit, they they had so much to gain and they had it was so great because it gave them the opportunity to reach out to their donors, to, to, to tell them their story, to, to ask for a donation and then to get this match. And the importance of relationship in, in philanthropy is huge. You, you build that relationship because once you have that relationship, you understand the issues that you're both trying to address together. Mm-hmm. Again, and I think maybe this is a, a female approach, but just doing things in community becomes so much more powerful. And you, if you're, if you feel like your your dollars are making a difference and you're you're impacting a community, you're generally going to give again. You're going to give more. It just kind of feeds on itself the positive energy that's there. Yeah, and you build you're you're building a village and you're building community at this time when we're all suffering from lack of right mm-hmm. yes. that, that interaction and that that um and we're also so acutely feeling this and, and i'm curious your perspective because you've also spent a ton of time living in different countries you've lived <laughs> in spain you've lived in tokyo um you've traveled the world and i'm curious in terms of you know the approach to philanthropy the you know kind of societal taboos around money and and wealth in general is that something that you feel like is a global phenomenon? Is it more in the westernized uh, regions of the world? Like, is it something that you picked up on in your international adventures, which I'm yeah. up, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, I think different cultures definitely have different attitudes. Um, I remember we we went to China and the very, we landed, you know, of course you're jet lagged and you're kind of, everything's blurry, everything's new. And I got, we got in the car and the driver asked us, well, do your kids go to private school? How much does that cost? Is it expensive? Like they started asking us all about money. And, and then the next morning when our tour guide, you know, picked us up to take us to the Great Wall, she's like, wow, this is an expensive hotel. How much are you paying for your room? Oh, wow. So it's so direct. Yeah. And so, so just such a different attitude. Um, and yeah, I lived in Tokyo and, it, and when I was younger and taught English to business executives. And one of the things I remember there was, you know, I, I would show them TV shows and then we discuss it. And one of the ads, uh, it was an American show. And one of the ads was like, get two pizzas for the price of one. And I remember one of my students like, why would you want two pizzas? <laughs> and it, it just made me realize, yeah, we in the United States, we're out for a deal. You know, more is always better. And the attitude in Japan really is we want to pay more because that means that it's quality. Mm. So a deal was not an issue. Like, why would you want a second pizza? Like, I I remember that so clearly how different the thinking was. Yeah. Um, And yeah, and we lived in Barcelona for a long time. And there again, I think it's, you know, when you live in another culture, you learn about that culture, but you also learn about your own culture. And it showed me really that we are quite materialistic in this country. They spend a lot more time around family, sitting around the dinner table. It's, there's not this sort of one upmanship of, you know, know, who's driving what car. I mean, it made me realize that it's not just a human nature to say to someone you're meeting for the first time. So what do you do? Mm -hmm. They don't ask that question. And that question, you know, it's, it's loaded in many ways. And and in some ways, you know, you're trying to figure out, you know, who are you, what do you, you know, where are our connections, but are you asking about money? Are you asking about, you know, are you trying to place yourself above or below someone when you ask them that question? And that just, that wasn't a question that, that happened in, in Europe in general, I'd say. Yeah. So, you know, there are very, very different cultures, which makes me want to say that even within our own country, I think there are different cultures. I think maybe the Latinx community has a different culture around money. The black community, um, even within our families, we have different cultures around money. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a culture, you know, in and of itself. Like I grew up and I think this is maybe generational, like you were, I wasn't supposed to talk about money. When I asked about my dad's salary, that was none of my business. It was very unladylike to care about money. Um, so I kind of grew up with that kind of family culture, but I think that was pretty typical of, of, of the generation I was growing up in. 
Yeah, I, I think it still is in a lot of ways, right? Like I was also raised that you don't talk about politics and good luck with that over the past few years. But, um, you know, I think it's a, I, it's interesting. I, we think about this a lot in our family because, uh, you know, my husband is retired and full-time dad and a songwriter. And anytime that comes up, there's a ton of questions of, oh, what'd you do to be able to retire so young? And, oh, well, she must make the big bucks or, you know, there's, there's so many assumptions and it's a game. My husband loves just saying it and then just waiting for like the eyes to go and like the questions to come out. It's just like, here we go. Um, but it is true, right? It's like, it's, it, it, in it is, you know, maybe that I've asked it a million times myself and you really are trying to find that connection. But um, I also lived in Spain for a couple of years and they used to tell me all the time, Americans, oh, you, you live to work. We work, we work to live. And it's very, very true. Um, there was definitely like a more even, uh, sense of wealth, I guess, amongst the folks that I, everybody was doing just fine, but nobody had, you know, drastically more than the other. Um, but also like one point that you bring in your book and it has to do both with money and with philanthropy is really identifying what is valuable to you. What does it, what is meaningful to you? And there were so many anecdotes that I could relate with in terms of, um, one was the idea of going to a restaurant. I, before I met my husband, every time I went to a restaurant, I would just look at the right-hand side, look at the prices and then determine what I wanted to eat. And he thought that was the weirdest thing he had ever heard of. Um, and he's just like, I just get what I want. He doesn't look at, he still, he still, you could not, he could not tell you how much a half gallon of milk costs. Um, he just doesn't, he knows what he wants and he gets what he wants. And and that's a luxury that, that, <laughs> Um, but you know it's it's that sense and then there was such a beautiful story about your wedding I think it was and and I'm not going to give away the whole book but it was a beautiful story about having wine that was really meaningful to you and kind of having to rethink the value in your head versus just the dollar amount and what was important to you and you weave that through a lot of different stories and, and specifically your philanthropy work. And I wonder if you have anything you want to share on that end. Yeah. When you say that, it makes me think of the, you know, the idea of enough because mm. that one of the things I think that, I mean, ideally you feel enough from within. I mean, that that's very poetic and nice, but I think there's also, I feel still feel challenged. Do I have enough? And I think there's, there's a, a kind of point where you have to say to yourself, you know, there's always going to be more, mm -hmm. there's always going to be less and really make a, a, for me, obviously I have enough, you know, I need to remind myself, I need to remind my head of that because mm -hmm. my gut still can, can worry. And so it's making that kind of, you know, decision, a, a mental decision that I have enough. And I, and I guess I think it to say that because what, the story you just told about the wine, it was like so hard for me to think of paying, you know, $5 to, for every bottle just for corkage. And that, that just really was eating me up because I knew the value of $5, that was a lot of money. Yeah. But when I could just say, okay, I'll just pay, you know, $300 just to have the wine poured for all our guests for the whole evening. Like I kind of reframed it for myself. It was like this trick I played in my head. And I think the same happens with enough. Like I, I think it's it's sad when people are always chasing more and more and more because there's there is never enough in some ways, or there's always enough in other ways. Right. And I think making that mental decision that yeah, I have enough. Yeah, it's I and it's. I mean, that's really a challenge and it's something that I, I think about a lot and I think about with with my kids and um, you know, I can already see two very different relationships of money with them. I mean, they're nine and 13, so their concept is still quite skewed and, and not developed, but um, they have a very different relationship with it. And like even anxiety, I always have anxiety. My husband and I have always lived like, okay, one day the rug is going to come out from under us. And what is our oh shit plan? Um, and I'll never shake that. I, I just, I know after 20 plus years in my career that there's, you know, it doesn't keep me up at night, but we definitely have a like, pull this trigger, pull that trigger, and then 
we'll be okay. Um, yep. And, and, I, and there is something to not shaking it that, you know, that you, it's really hard to escape those messages, and those deeply ingrained habits that you learn in childhood. I mean, I still find myself circling a block trying to find free parking on the street. And I have to remind myself, go ahead, you can go ahead and pay for the lot. I know. Or, so, yeah. But it is finding those tricks of, you know, I for a while, I would start to like, think about like, okay, what do I make per hour? And what are the things I hate to do that I'd be willing to pay somebody else to do? Um, and, you know, it's it's something where, you know, even if it's somebody to come in and clean the house, my husband never wanted anybody in his house. He's like, this is our mm. house. I should be able to clean it. I'm not going to sit here while somebody cleans my house. Like, that's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, but now we, we, we've evolved and we do um, have somebody help us because I'm like, it's not like you're not cleaning the remainder of the two weeks before they come again. You're certainly cleaning a lot. Um, but it's those things of like, what is valuable to you? And what are the things that, you know, he, when he retired, he could have gotten another job and continued to make money. Um, but it was more valuable to us that he was able to be with our kids. And, and that is not the most popular thing for a man to do these days, you know? And it was really something where we had to be so intentional of what was meaningful to us to not have that shame surrounding it. Um, and it probably took us a good 10 years to, yeah. to this place where we're at. Congratulations. Yeah, that's hard. It's hard to um, not listen to all the noise because there's a lot of noise out there and a lot of preconceptions and judgments. And I mean, yeah, I think it's amazing when we can really listen to our hearts and, and follow those those values that we hold within and we, you know, that we can show up in the world and walk through the world the way we want to do it and not let, not be swayed by all the messaging and all the, yeah. Yeah, and all yeah, the so it's exciting for your husband to be home and, and yeah. you're doing what you want to do. Exactly. And, and finding all the meaningful ways to give back, whether it's through philanthropy, whether it's through um, being able to participate or volunteer at organizations or locations that are meaningful to you. Um, being able to spend some time in a in a professional kitchen like you you shared in your book. Those are things that make your life so fulfilled. Um, and I think the the freedom to rework, I, I often think a friend of ours um, used to have a corporate job, really wanted to get into teaching. And his wife was so supportive of it. She's like, I just want a happy husband. And, mm. you know, that's a very big decision to make as a family. Um, and I just thought it was such a beautiful partnership to to feel that and really feel that drive. And I think it all um, just comes back to value. So the, the notion of, of wealth and riches is our immediate brains goes to that one answer, but it's really just so much deeper. It's, it, yeah, it really is. I mean, it's easy to say, you know, I, I guess for a long time I said, well, money, I thought money doesn't make you happy, but I secretly thought that it just might. And, and now I can say, you know, it, that's not it. It really is, you know, having a purpose, finding a meaning, feeling fulfilled, you know, having relationships that, that, that are meaningful. And I think we, so that, you know, the noise I was mentioning, I think we think if only then, and I think we do that a lot around money, you know, if only I could get that promotion, maybe then my life will be perfect, right? And we do it around so many things. If only I could lose 20 pounds or I met the right person. And I had that if only happen. And I'm still me. In the end, I've got to figure out what, who am I? What do I care about? How am I going to feel fulfilled? Um, I think that's the trick. And yes, I want to say money does make life easier. I'm very fortunate. Of course, yes. But it it's not making me happier right. than, it, yeah. It does, and it doesn't make life perfect. Um, and it doesn't make life perfect. Yeah. It means there are certain things that you don't have to worry about as much as others, and that is a gift and a privilege. Yes. Um, but there is just so much more uh, in this life that we are graciously trying to live each day. Yes. <laughs>
and it keeps going there's not an end point you know there's always tomorrow and so yeah yeah well let's hope there's always tomorrow. <laughs> exactly uh, listen so if our um listeners want to learn more the book is called we need to talk a memoir about wealth um, are there other ways to get in touch with any of your philanthropy efforts or any other uh, ways that we should have folks reach out uh, thank you. Yeah, I have a website and it's jenniferrisher.com. Do it two R's, Jennifer Risher. Um, and then we also have relaunched Half My Daft for a second year. We just started in February. So we're again trying to inspire giving. Um, and it's Half My Daft, H A L F M Y A D A F, halfmydaft.com. And if you have a donor advised fund and you realize that this is the moment that we need to be giving because there's just so much need out there in our country, half your DAF and get the chance to, to get a matching grant from us. That's amazing. I, I love that you're doing that. And I, you know, just need to share one more bit about the book. You have provided such thought provoking questions at the end of every chapter um, that while devouring this book in less than one day, the questions really sat with me and will continue to sit with me, just kind of reflecting on your own relationship with money, thinking about your relationship, your partner's relationship with money, your family, your friends, uh, how it drives your ambition. It's just such an important topic to get more in touch with yourself so you can get more in touch with others about it. So Thank you for bringing this to light. Thank you for making the time to be on Working Wife Happy Life. And I'm so excited about future collaborations. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please leave a review to give us direct feedback and also to get the podcast in front of more eyes. It's very much appreciated. Mm -hmm.